Ezekiel chapter 38. We're on part three of a message entitled, How the Christian Should View Israel. Part three of a message entitled, How the Christian Should View Israel. We're going to be starting in Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you're there, let's ask the Lord to bless this Bible study. Thank you so much for your word that is before us now. God, as we get into your word, we ask that you would continue in us this atmosphere, this heart of worship. As we've sang to you, as we've expressed adoration, as we've gave to you, as we've committed to the work of your kingdom, now we want to commit ourselves to the work of your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. And so Holy Spirit, come and instruct us. I'm your son, you know me. I'm I'm not worthy, I'm not capable of such things. And so we would ask together, Lord, that you would author my thoughts. That every syllable that falls from these lips would be from you. And that, Lord, for us here this morning that love you, that treasure your word, that you would instruct us profoundly and that you'd move us to action. You'd make us in this church doers of your word this day. We would respond to the truths of it and the realities of what's going on in our world. That we would respond with fervency and with passion for your name. Teach us now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the third week in which we will be discussing the topic of the nation of Israel and Bible prophecy. I have a sneaking suspicion that there'll be more weeks to come. But this is week three so far. The reason that we are devoting so much time to the topic of Israel and Bible prophecy, the reason that we're willing to devote even more time is twofold. Number one, it is because the Bible devotes so much time to the subject. As I've told you for the last two weeks, five-sixths of the Bible have to do directly or indirectly with the nation of Israel and the Jews. Five-sixths of it. Therefore, if you ignore the topic, you're ignoring the bulk of the Bible, correct? Makes sense. Furthermore, about 27% of the Bible was prophetic at the time of writing. It was predictive of the future at the time of writing. So almost a third, over a quarter of the Bible in front of you is prophetic, is Bible prophecy. And and so to ignore the subject of Bible prophecy, to not commit ourselves to a study thereof, to not be willing to commit time to it, it's just disproportionate with how God laid out his word. And so because the Bible spends so much time on the nation of Israel and Bible prophecy, we're willing to do that today. The second reason is because the world and the media devote so much time to the subject of Israel and even Bible prophecy. I I don't know if you saw that on Fox News this week, uh, one of the little, you know, the little banners they put at the bottom of the screen, one of the little banners said, is this Armageddon? They're on Fox News. They were asking the question, and it seems like, you know, the networks, anytime somebody sneezes in the Middle East, they ask, is this Armageddon? Is this it? Is this the battle of Armageddon? You know what I mean? And uh, no, it's not the battle of Armageddon. That's outlined in the Bible, and this is not it, because it happens after the tribulation period. And I know the tribulation period hasn't happened yet because the rapture hasn't happened yet. And so I wish Fox would have called me. I would have told them just in 10 seconds, no, it's not. Rapture hasn't happened, tribulation hasn't happened, but they never call me. But what surprised me even more is then someone on Fox News went on to ask, is the rapture of the church near at this time? 
Now that surprised me. I didn't know Fox knew about the rapture of the church. And the answer to Fox News is, yes, Fox News, the rapture of the church is near. Please call me. I would love to explain it to you. Yes, the rapture of the church is very near, as we'll see today in our Bible study through the end time scenario that's lining up. Uh, Almost more incredible, on MSNBC this week, they were asking the question of someone. They said, is this current conflict the battle outlined in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Good job, NBC, for knowing about Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's incredible, and we will answer your question in this Bible study. Wish you would call. But we're willing to devote so much time to the subject because world attention is focused on the subject, and the media is consumed by it. There's not another conflict in the world that gets 24-hour coverage. You know, there's a lot of bloody conflicts in the world right now. There's ones far bloodier than what's going on in Israel. I mean, do you know what's happening in Sudan? Do you know that Christians by the tens of thousands have been slaughtered there this year? Tens of thousands of Christians in Sudan. That's not on the news. It's not even in the news, much less 24-hour coverage. But there's something about Israel and Jerusalem in the Middle East, isn't there? It, It gets so much coverage. No other nation garners so much attention or disdain as Israel. And so it follows because the Bible devotes so much time to the subject, because the world is so interested in the subject, that we Christians must know it. Amen? We must know and understand. We are alive for such a time as this. We live in these last days. It is our God-given responsibility and privilege to know what the Bible says about these things at this moment in history. But it's not just Israel that is in the news, that is also an ancient biblical place. There's other places being mentioned in the news every single day that that you you see there and you can also see in your Bible from beginning to end. For example, Syria. Syria is in the Bible all the time. And its capital, Damascus. Syria and Damascus. You, You turn on the news, you hear about them. They're in your Bible all the time. Solomon used the mighty cedars from Lebanon to build his house in the temple of the Lord. And it has a prophetic future that we'll talk about today. Lebanon. Lebanon's in the Bible. Tyre and Sidon, cities in Lebanon. Jesus spoke about these places. They're in the Bible and they're in the news today. Also, Iran. Now, in the Bible, it's not called Iran. That's its modern name. It's called Persia. And Persia is all throughout the Bible and has a a fascinating prophetic future that we'll talk about a little bit today. Also, Iraq. Now, Iraq, again, is a modern name. Uh, You don't see that in the Bible, but it's Babylon. And Babylon is in the Bible, isn't it? Historically and prophetically. There's much that has happened, and, and there's more to come. And so we see nations and cities, not just Israel and Jerusalem, other ones that we hear about in the news every day that are in the Bible. And there are events unfolding right now. Folding right now that affect these nations and, of course, the nation of Israel. And so our topic today is God's prophecies concerning Israel, the last part of the outline that we've been working our way through for two weeks. You remember the outline. Number one, God's purposes in Israel. Number two, God's promises to Israel. Number three, God's preservation of Israel. And number four, God's prophecies concerning Israel, our topic today. What does the future hold for Israel and the surrounding nations? We'll look at three key prophetic passages. Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is before you. Isaiah chapter 17. 
And then we'll end up in Zechariah chapter 12 and 14. Now, with regards to Ezekiel 38 and 39, we do not have time today to go through the entirety of the two chapters. We don't have time to talk about all the details. I uh, did that in previous messages. You could go to uh, our website there and, and look those up. We don't have time today to do all that. Therefore, it is your homework to read very carefully. Now, you're really going to want to read this when we're finished today. To read very carefully Ezekiel 38 and 39. I want you to read it, in fact, multiple times. But I'll give you just the basics of what it's about. Ezekiel 38 and 39, the events thereof, are commonly referred to as the Magog invasion. You may have heard that, the Magog invasion. And basically what it is, is it is a confederacy, a confederacy excuse me, of nations that come against the nation of Israel. So the Magog invasion, spoken of in these two chapters, is a battle against Israel brought on by a confederacy or a conglomeration of nations. You say, well, that's nothing new. I mean, Israel has always been outnumbered by its enemies. It's always been attacked by multiple nations at the same time. We talked about it in Second Chronicles chapter 20 last week. We've seen it in modern history. That's what happened in 1948, five countries. That's what happened in 1967 with three countries. That's what happened in 1973 with two countries backed by five others. You say, that's not any news. Yeah, but this one hasn't happened yet. As you read through it, you'll see very clearly that this battle has not happened yet. It'll be very clear to you as you study the passage. And these are new players. These are not the same old historical enemies like Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and Egypt. There's some new dudes thrown into the mix here. So I want you to read very carefully. The other basic thing that I want you to know about the Magog invasion is that it ends with God intervening on behalf of Israel and bringing bringing about a miraculous victory. You say, well, that's nothing new either. We've seen that many times throughout the Bible. In fact, that's Bible history. And we've seen that in modern history. We demonstrated that to you last week. But as I said, there's some new players that I want to introduce you to. So let's start reading in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, verse 1. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you about, and I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out... And all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Also Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them, with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops. Beth Togarmah from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops. Many peoples with you. So here are the key players. And we're going to seek to identify them. And let me just tell you that We don't have time today for me to explain to you why we're identifying each one of these nations or areas as we are today, but that information is readily available to you. There's been whole volumes written on the subject of linguistic studies, anthropological studies, historical studies, why certain ancient nations here are identified with certain modern nations. I don't have time to go into it, but I I tell you today, don't trust me. Be a Berean investigate it for yourselves. Don't just say, well, Pastor Britt said so. That must be right. 
investigate it for yourselves. That's what the Bible tells you to do in Acts chapter 17. But I'm giving you what I understand to be the truth, uh, the best I could do by the Spirit of God, and and many scholars and and Bible students that would back up these interpretations. But first of all, in verse chapter 2, we have the land of Magog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. For all intents and purposes, this is the area known as Russia, formerly the USSR. You read there in verse 6 that it's referred to as the remotest parts of the north. If you go north of Israel, that's really pretty descriptive. It says the same thing in chapter 39, verse 2. There's also uh, linguistic and etymological reasons why we connect this with Russia. But we do believe that this area mentioned in verse 2, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal makes up the area known now as modern-day Russia. It's the most popular interpretation, and I think a a trustworthy one. Now, in verse 5, we have Persia. We already identified Persia for you. Who's Persia? Iran. Ask anyone from Iran, what are you? They'll tell you, I'm Persian. They don't call themselves Iranians. They call themselves Persian. And uh, there's no question about it that ancient Persia is now called Iran. We also have there Ethiopia, or you have the King James Cush. Ethiopia or Cush. It's not modern Ethiopia. That's an ancient designation. It's really now the area that is modern-day Sudan. Okay, so Sudan is a player in this. Verse 5, we have Put. And I'll tell you where we put Put. Put is the area north of Africa, or not north of, but of North Africa and east of Egypt. So that would include places like Libya, uh, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, okay? So those are the modern places that identify with the ancient name put. And then we have Gomer. Gomer is really the most difficult to identify, and it's the one that is most debated within Christendom. Um, But I think that there's good reason to identify Gomer with at least part of Europe, if not a very large part of Europe. Uh, Eastern Europe, I think, for sure. So... For our purposes today, we're going to identify Gomer with Europe. And then you have Beth Togarmah, and this one is pretty sure. Nobody really disputes it, but that is Turkey in the area east of Turkey. So you have Turkey, and then those little nations like Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. Okay, so there's going to be the armies from the north. According to verse chapter 4, God puts his hook in the jaw of Gog and Magog, brings it against Israel, and then that army brings with them this other conglomeration of nations. Now, the first thing that happens in your mind is you ask, why these nations? First of all, when you see the map of all of them there, what do you see? Israel surrounded, right? That's nothing new. Israel's always been surrounded by her enemies. That doesn't surprise you. Last week, we had several maps up here from several battles of Israel where they were surrounded by their enemies. Same situation once again. Just some new players. But, but what is the uniting point for all of these? Why do they come together? And why might it be this time? Well, if, if, if you're up on these nations in the region and... and uh, What's going on over there? You understand immediately that the vast majority of them are Muslim nations. They're nations that are committed to Islam. And so that seems to be the uniting factor with them, is that these are Muslim nations. Now, with the exception, of course, of northern Russia and parts of Europe. 
But I got to tell you, according to all the data, things are changing in Europe. And things are changing very quickly, and it's going toward Islam. Uh, Did you know that there are now more mosques in London than there are churches? There are now more Muslim mosques in London than there are Christian churches. That was not always so. I visited London in the last few years. You will see their churches, hundreds of years old. They used to be beautiful, vibrant, alive Christian churches, some of them historic. And now they have a brand new facade on them, and they are mosques. And just about every single week in England, churches are closing and reopening their doors as mosques. Here's an article I found from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, The title is, Islam Shaping a New Europe. And it reads, For the first time in history, Muslims are building large and growing minorities across the secular Western world. Nowhere more visibly than in Western Europe, where their numbers have more than doubled in the past two decades. The impact is unfolding from Amsterdam to Paris to Madrid. Just as Egypt, Pakistan, and Iran are witnessing the debate over the shape of Islam today, Europe is emerging as the battleground of tomorrow. There are over 23 million Muslims. Lord, please save them. In Europe, over 23 million of them right now. Now, I'm going to show you some photos, a little bit disturbing, that are going to portray to you, generally speaking, the, the Islamic mindset in Europe at this moment. Listen to me. Listen very carefully before I show you these pictures. Don't give me this thing about moderate Islam. And that the Islam that is aggressors, well, those are only a minority of extreme Muslims. Don't tell me that. I'm telling you that those that are aggressive, what we see going on in the world, those are Quranic Muslims, just as we have biblical Christians. These are the Muslims that believe their scriptures, the Quran. Don't say that those who don't believe, those moderate Muslims, don't tell me that those are the representative of Islam. Because you know what? Liberal Christians are not the representative of Christianity. I'm looking for biblical Christianity. And and those who reject the deity of Jesus Christ, who reject the virginity of uh, the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, Yeah, who reject his virginity too. Some people attack that. Those who uh, would reject uh, salvation through him alone, a literal physical resurrection, those who reject the inerrancy of Scripture, these are not the representatives of Christianity. This is not biblical Christianity. Those who cling to such doctrines are biblical Christianity. We uphold our Scriptures, and it's the same thing in the Muslim mindset. So we're going to be picturing here Muslims that believe the Quran and act on it. I wish more Christians would do so with regards to our scriptures. So let's look at the first picture. Now, you're going to think when you see these pictures and I read what these signs say to you that this is Tehran. This is not Tehran. This is not Iran. This is London in the last couple weeks. Here is an Islamic demonstration. I'll read to you some of the signs that they're holding up. Slay those who insult Islam. Europe, you will pay. Demolition is on its way. Butcher those who mock Islam. And again, Europe, you will pay. Extermination is on its way. Butcher? Butcher those who mock Islam? 
Listen, there is no religion in the world that is more mocked than Christianity. And what did our leader tell us to do? He said to consider it a blessing when we are cursed and reviled for his name's sake. To consider it a blessing. He said to bless those who curse us, to pray for our enemies. Islam says, and Islam in London says, behead those who mock Islam. Go to the next slide. There it is. Behead those who insult Islam. Why is that? What are they afraid of? I'll tell you what they're afraid of. Islam is not the truth. Islam is not the truth. That's why they get very, very aggressive when you attack it. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And we don't behead people when they insult us or mock our faith. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 13, when the Antichrist comes and he murders those who do not receive the mark of the beast, that his chosen form of execution is beheading. It's very interesting, isn't it, that a few years ago we would have said beheading. Well, that's archaic. That can't be what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 13. But now if you have the stomach for it, you can go on the internet and watch beheadings at the hands of Islam. Next slide. On the left there, Europe is a cancer. Islam is the answer. On the right, exterminate those who slander Islam. Next one. Freedom, go to hell. I am telling you, this ideology is diametrically opposed to what you and I believe. Freedom, go to hell. Why do they say that? Well, they say that because the Quran commands that Islam conquer the world by force. And what the Quran says is either the infidel, the non-believer, converts to Islam, acquiesces, and comes under, is submitted to Islam, or he is exterminated. And I'm sick and tired of the liberal media saying to you and I that Islam means peace. It does not mean peace. Islam means submission. And the express goal of Islam is to conquer the world by all means necessary, namely by force. Submit to Islam or be exterminated. That is Quranic Islam. Next one. Europe. This is horrific. Europe. Take some lessons from 9-11. Next. Europe, you will pay. Your 9-11 is on its way. Where does this come from? People, this is from the pit of hell. This is wickedness personified. This is the fastest growing religion in America. This is a religion in America, which some experts say is now the second largest. It used to be Christianity and then Judaism. Now they say Christianity and Islam. Islam in America is larger than Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christian scientists, Seventh-day Adventists, Episcopalians, all put together. Islam outnumbers them all in America. But we're talking about Europe. Next. Be Be prepared for the real Holocaust. What Hitler did to the Jews wasn't enough. Be prepared for the real Holocaust. Next. Massacre those who insult Islam. Exterminate those who slander Islam. Europe will pay. Is there another one? 
Please tell me there's not. Thank you. This is a growing presence of Islam in Europe. Well over 23 million. Understand, though, that Islam does not have to necessarily be the reason why if we identify Gomer as parts of Europe, Islam does not necessarily have to be the reason why they will come with Russia when it comes and join with that confederacy of Muslim nations. I believe that Europe will have its own political, financial, economic reasons for wanting to do that. But the facts are there's a growing Muslim presence there, and it's not hard to imagine that they would align themselves with those other countries that we previously mentioned. But I, I want you to understand that the conflict in the Middle East is not political. Therefore, there will never be a political solution that solves it. It is not political. It is a spiritual situation that is going on in the Middle East. It is a spiritual and religious situation. I I feel so sorry for Condi Rice. I, I, I think she's a great woman. I feel sorry for the task that is put before her to try to go and negotiate, broker some sort of peace in the Middle East because it is not a political situation. It is a spiritual, religious situation in the Middle East. You don't believe me? They were claiming that explicitly in 1970. A quote here from the Supreme Islamic Council in 1970. It says, The Palestine question is not a national issue, nor is it a political issue. It is first and foremost an Islamic issue. And those nations that we've identified here in Ezekiel 38, at least many of them, are Islamic. Turkey, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Sudan, Iran, so on and so forth. So there's a clear link here that these nations that will come against Israel in this battle, which is yet future, are driven by the ideology of Islam. I think that's undeniable. Now, we've got to ask two questions then. One should be very obvious to us. The second question is, why would Russia, if that's a correct identification of Magog, be partner with such nations? But the first question that I want to answer is, is Islam hostile to Israel? That should be obvious. Is Islam hostile to Israel? The answer is yes. Islam is hostile to Israel. In fact, in their scriptures, in the Quran, Islam refers to Jews and Christians as the descendants of apes and pigs. Jews and, did I say Christians? Oh, because that's what the Quran says. Okay, I meant to. Jews and Christians. It may seem now that the, the, the war of Islam is focused on Jews. Listen, Christians. You don't believe me? Here's a Quran. It's a lovely one. It's very pretty. It's very evil. But here it says in three different places that Allah turned Jews and Christians into apes and pigs when they rejected Islam. You can come look at it if you want. It says it in Surah 2, Surah's chapter in the Quran. Surah 2, verse 65. Surah 5, verse 60. And Surah 7, verse 166. This is a guiding ideology in Islam and in the battle in the Middle East. You guys have heard of Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera, that is a, uh, a, a television station and media outlet there in the Middle East. Uh, it's Arab and it's Islamic. And one of the main guys on there, he's got a call-in show, is Dr. Faisal Al-Qassam. Listen to this quote. 
He says, The sons of Zion, whom our God described as the sons of apes and pigs, will not be deterred unless there is a real holocaust that will destroy all of them at once together with the traitors. This, this is not some fringe gig, man. This is the major media outlet, Al Jazeera. And this is a major figure on that network. Here's a Hamas leaflet. You guys know Hamas. They were elected by the Palestinians to government in the last few months. Hamas was elected. Here's a, uh, an excerpt from a leaflet of theirs from 1993, September 1. It says, we are announcing a war against the sons of apes and pigs, which will not end until the flag of Islam is raised in Jerusalem. You see that? They didn't say the flag of Palestine. They didn't say the flag of Jordan. They didn't say the flag of Iran or Syria or of Lebanon. It's not a political situation. They said until the flag of Islam is raised over Jerusalem. Next, we have a quote from Dr. Ahmed Abu Halabaya. He is a rector of advanced studies uh, at the Islamic University. And this is a quote from him that was on the Palestinian Authority television station. Okay, this is government-sanctioned, government-designated television in the area that you sometimes refer to as Palestine, the Gaza Strip, so on and so forth. Here's what he said. The Jews are Jews. They do not have any moderates or any advocates of peace. They are all liars. They must be butchered and must be killed. The Jews are like a spring. As long as you step on it with your foot, it doesn't move. But if you lift your foot from the spring, it hurts you and punishes you. It is forbidden to have mercy in your hearts for the Jews in any place and in any land. Make war on them anywhere that you find yourself. Any place that you meet them, kill them. That was a Friday sermon from a mosque that was aired on TV. If that was aired on the local government channel, Channel 17 here, and it was a message from a local church and somebody was speaking like that, do you understand what would happen? And yet now when enemies driven by Islam who proclaim Islam, come against Israel, we say to them, Oh, Israel, exercise restraint. Oh, be gentle. Be careful. Oh, you're too harsh. You're responding too greatly. Why do they respond the way that they respond? Because they're not fools. They are, by every measure of the map, surrounded by enemies whose expressed goal, written goal, is to annihilate them from the face of the earth. Another article here from the Associated Press. The headline is, Iranian leader says Israel will be destroyed. Tehran, President Mahoud Ahmadinejad declared Wednesday that Israel is a disgraceful blot that should be wiped off the map. Fiery words that Washington said underscores its concern over Iran's nuclear program. They're concerned. Ahmadinejad, however you say it, also condemned Iran's neighbors which seek to break new ground in their relations with Israel and said, anybody who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. State-run television quoted him as saying. 
Can you imagine if someone said to you as a people group, my goal is to exterminate you and blot you out, you filthy stain. And anybody that sides with you will be consumed with my fiery wrath. goes on in the article and says, referring to Palestinian suicide bomb attacks in Israel, Ahmadinejad said, there is no doubt that the new wave in Palestine will soon wipe off this disgraceful blot from the face of the Islamic world. So the question was, is Islam hostile toward Israel? I think the answer is very clear. More than we could ever imagine. Frighteningly so. Now, though much of the Western world wants to deny that, we we love to have our heads in the sand. We really do. We did it in the world wars. Though we would love to deny the reality of that, Israel cannot afford to deny the reality of that. They know who their enemy is. Israel knows that their enemy is Islam. They know that it is a religious and a spiritual battle. They know that their enemy is Islam. I will illustrate that to you by two photos. This first photo behind me is a photo of an Israeli F-16. They buy him from America, completely stripped down, and they retrofit him to be the most advanced F-16s in the world. This is an Israeli F-16 flying over Masada, for those of you that went to Israel with us and the historical significance of that. You'll see on the tailpiece there is a little red emblem. So we go to the next slide. We have that red emblem blown up for you. It is an eagle representing the Israeli military. And in its talons is, make no mistake about it, a Islamic crescent, the crescent of Islam. And the eagle is breaking it in half in its talons. Israel will make no apologies for that. They've been threatened since the moment they were born again as a nation. They've been threatened from that very moment. They know who their enemy is. It's even painted on the side of their warplanes. They absolutely know that the enemy is Islam. Now, the key player at this point is the president of Iran, ancient Persia. We mentioned him several times already. Throughout history, someone in Islam will rise to the forefront, a leader. And throughout history, we see that he he will have the goal of uniting Islam uniting any, any nations, any people groups that ascribe to Islam, uniting them for the purpose of world dominance. That's what they're told to do in the Quran. And so we have, historically speaking, certain leaders who would raise up and seek to unite them. Historically speaking, if Islam doesn't have anybody to beat up on, they beat up on each other. You, you know that. The Sunnis and the Shiites and so on and so forth. You see that in the news all the time. If they don't have anybody to beat up, they beat up on each other. Um, but what, what the president of Iran is seeking to do is unite the Muslim world, that they might dominate the world and wipe Israel off the face of the map. Here's an article from London Times, July 23rd, just a couple weeks ago. The headline is, God's army has plans to run the whole Middle East. God being Allah there, the God of Islam, not our God. The sub-headline is, Hezbollah, the group at the heart of the Lebanese conflict, is the spearhead of Iran's ambitions to be a superpower. And here's another quote from the president of Iran. I invite the faithful to wait for good news, Iran's president said Tuesday. We shall soon witness the elimination of the Zionist stain of shame. And his goal is not to stop with Israel. Look at this next slide. This is also from those demonstrations. 
It says, Islam will dominate the world. Islam will dominate the world. Friends, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And it's an ancient spiritual battle. We've already identified Iran as ancient Persia. Persia and Israel have been at war for thousands of years in the spiritual realm. Do you remember Daniel chapter 10? In the book of Daniel there, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, which is pretty cool, right? Where was Daniel at the time he was reading the prophet Jeremiah? He was in Iraq, Babylon. They had been exiled there. Now the prophet Jeremiah, it's now in our chapter 29, uh, the prophet Jeremiah told us by the Spirit of God that they would be in exile in Israel for 70 years. About 66 years into their exile, there's little Daniel in Iraq, Babylon, reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he sees there in chapter 29, now is what we call it, that they will be returned to the land after 70 years. And so seeing that the time is near, he does what we ought to do, he begins to pray and fast. And he's praying and fasting for three weeks, seeking the Lord on the future of the nation of Israel, because he understands in a few years, they're to return to the land. And so just like us, you know, um, what God says he's going to do does not preclude us from praying. It should be impetus for our prayer. It should spur us on to praying. God said he returned them back to the land, so he started to pray. And in Daniel chapter 10, we're told that God sent a messenger angel probably Gabriel. He's usually the one that delivered such messages to Daniel. And we pick it up there. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. It says, Then he, that is the messenger angel, said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, but I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And then there was delivered prophecies that, uh, concerning Israel going all the way up to our current time. What happened here? Daniel began to pray about the future of his nation. And God immediately, we're told by the angel, sent the answer, but the angel was delayed for three weeks because there was spiritual battle. Wow. The Bible says that when we pray, we enter into spiritual battle. Daniel began to pray and a spiritual battle ensued. Now, who was the demonic force that wanted to stop the message about Israel's future from getting through? The prince of Persia. That was the power. That was the principality. That was a demonic authority that wanted to stop the message from being delivered because I'll tell you, the message ultimately is one of redemption and it is one of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. The devil never wants God's people to know about his faithfulness, about his promises and there was literally a spiritual battle that ensued that was so intense then Michael, the archangel, had to come to the rescue of this angel. Now, Michael, the archangel, bad. He is bad. He's the military commander on behalf of Israel concerning the heavenly host. He's bad. That means it was a gnarly battle if Michael was dispatched and he freed up the messenger angel and then he came. But for three weeks, there was a battle and it was the demonic principalities over what is now modern Iran. I'm telling you, we are seeing the same battle which has been happening in the spiritual realm for thousands of years, being manifest in the physical realm. It flares up throughout history. 
We're seeing a flare-up at this current moment. And the conflict in the Middle East is spiritual in that it is, in essence, this. It is Satan wanting to remove Israel from the promises and provision and protection of God. Now, you can relate to that. Satan wants to do the same thing in our lives all the time, right? God has made certain promises to you. God provides for you in certain ways. God protects you in certain ways. And Satan's goal, you know, if he can't get you to hell, is just to get you off track a bit. Just get you outside of God's provision. Just get you outside of God's promises. Just get you walking out of his will a bit. And then what happens? Well, we're so silly, we begin to think, oh, God, let me down. Oh, God hasn't been faithful to me. God has failed me somehow. God has not failed you. He never fails. Never leave you or forsake you. And it's the same goal in the Middle East today. It is Satan. Read Revelation chapter 12. More homework. It is Satan coming against the nation of Israel to try to mar the image of God with all his efforts to try to get God to not be faithful on one of his promises. But I tell you, he cannot do it. God is faithful. In those situations, we'll get hairy. God has always been and will always be faithful. But do you see, at the core of it, it is a spiritual battle and how a political solution will never do. Now, there will come a political solution And it will bring what the Bible calls a false peace for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And the one who brings that is none other than the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. More homework. But that is a false peace. He comes as a political leader. He he brokers a a political deal that brings uh, a, a perceived peace for a time to Israel. But it's not real. Listen, there will not be peace in the Middle East until Messiah comes back again. That's what the Bible says. It's a spiritual reality. The second question that we wanted to answer there is why would Russia, if the correct identification of Magog is Russia, be partnered with such nations? Why would Russia partner with these nations? Well, the answer is Russia already is. It's not anything that has to develop in the future. Russia is already partnered with these nations. It is interesting that Russia is the one who arms Iran. Persia. Now, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you've read the news, and we knew it before it came out on the news, I shared this with you uh, off the tape a few weeks ago, that Iran is the one who supplies Hezbollah. Iran supplies tens of millions of dollars a year to them, has trained the army for months prior to this situation, and arms them to the teeth. Iran is the one. Hezbollah is merely doing Iran's bidding. But Russia is the one who arms Iran. I'll tell you what's more interesting. According to recent headlines, Russia does not consider Iran a threat to peace in the Middle East or a threat to national security. Russia does not consider Iran a threat to peace in the Middle East or a threat to national security. It's more, it's more, it's more horrific than that. Russia does not consider Hezbollah to be a terrorist group. Did you read this? This came out in the Associated Press a few days ago, July 29th of this year. The headline, Hamas, Hezbollah, not on Russia's terror list. State publishes list of groups it regards as terrorist organization and fails to include Hamas or Hezbollah. Official says movements do not represent a threat to Russia. Wait a minute. (laughs) Oh, it's okay, man. 
I've got two of them. (laughs) They don't consider Hamas and Hezbollah terrorist organizations? Well, their reasoning is they're not a threat to us, so we're not going to put them on a list of terrorist organizations. If they're not a threat to Russia, what are they? They're allies. There's no question about it. They admitted it right there. Russia is already aligned with these nations and with these groups. Now, in the current conflict, should it escalate much further at all, Israel and Iran will be drawn into a direct confrontation. Right now, Israel and Iran are at war through Hezbollah. Should it escalate any further, they will come in direct contact. If they do that, I believe that it may then be the hook in the jaw, here in Ezekiel 38 verse 4, the hook in the jaw that brings Russia down from the north to get involved in the conflict and then stirs up these other nations. I mean, you better believe that if Israel goes to war with Iran and Russia says, hey, we'll join in on that. In fact, we'll lead that, which is the, what we get from the text here. We'll lead this charge that Sudan and Turkey and Turkmenistan and all these other nations would say, Awesome. Wow, okay, we'll go with you. Yeah, we're Islam. We want to see uh, Israel destroyed. And so it is very conceivable, in my estimation, that this current conflict could very easily and almost an instant escalate to be the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's very clear from Scripture that the battle has not happened yet. But I would say not just the stage is set. I would say that the actors are dressed and that the curtain is beginning to be drawn and they are taking their places and opening their mouths for this act. Now, of course, that begs the question, does the Bible tell us exactly when this battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 will happen? Yesterday, I was down at the uh, prophecy conference that we told you about down at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. And boy, if you weren't there, I, I hope you were giving birth or dying or something else. You, I can't believe you missed that. that is, it was absolutely incredible. You won't have another chance for a year. You should not miss something like that when it comes to California. You should not do that. It was absolutely incredible. And I had the privilege um, to sit down in a room with some of my heroes. I had the privilege to sit down uh, to a table with David Hawking and Dave Hunt and Randall Price, and Jacob Prash, and Jack Hibbs. And uh, we ate hummus together. We ate hummus and flatbread. There at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, backstage. I got to sit down with these guys. And, um, man, I had a million questions in my head, but I said, listen, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching tomorrow. I'm talking about Ezekiel 38 and 39. Can you help me out here? When does it happen? That's the big question. Might it be now? When does it happen? And David Hawking, in his big, booming voice, if you know David Hawking, said, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Armageddon. And he's got great reasons why it is. And I'll tell you what, he's convinced me at times that it is the battle of Armageddon. He says that this is just another description of that battle that unfolds at the end of the tribulation period, which would mean it's at least seven years from now. He says it's the battle of Armageddon. He's got good reasons why he believes that. And then uh, Dave Hunt chimes in. And Dave Hunt says, yes, yes, I agree with you. It's the battle of Armageddon. But he had different reasons from uh, David Hawking, and I got all excited saying, okay, yeah, this makes sense, this makes sense. And then Randall Price, who I believe is the sharpest mind concerning these things right now. Don't tell Dave and Dave I said that. But Randall Price uh, said, no, no, no. Uh, I believe that the Magog invasion takes place after the rapture, 
and before the beginning of the tribulation, that undetermined period of time, that that's when the Magog invasion took place. And then Jacob Prash, who is absolutely brilliant, he is a, a, a Jewish Christian, he has incredible insight from the Lord, he said, no, no, it happens in the middle of the tribulation period. I'm thinking, guys, you are not helping me for tomorrow's message. This is not, here you are, my heroes, and I'm getting no help from you guys. And there was this lively debate that ensued, and they were debating back and forth. And I'll tell you what, Dave Hawking had great reasons why it's got to be Armageddon. And Dave Hunt backed him up with more great reasons why it's got to be Armageddon. But then Randall Price's reasons why it's after the rapture and before the trip seemed just, just tight. I mean, there was no arguing against him. But then when Jacob Prash lays out the argument for it happening in the middle of tribulation, you're pretty sure he's right. The point is, like so many other events in Bible prophecy, we don't know exactly when. It's not given to us to know exactly when. But what we do know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that the moment is near. It doesn't take but a few movements by key players for us to be right there. And so, listen, if that is so close then how close is the coming of the Lord for the church? The the stage is set. I had two other passages I want to get to. We're never going to get there. We're out of time. So we're going to have to add a few more parts to this series. We'll stop right there, but let me exhort you on something. Well, let's see how it finishes, lest you leave overwhelmed today. Go to Ezekiel 39. I was going to leave this for your homework, but I don't want to leave you waiting that long. Here we see the outcome of the battle, okay? The outcome of the battle. Ezekiel 39, starting in verse 25. Ezekiel 39, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I shall be jealous for my holy name. Remember from Ezekiel 36, it has to do with his name. It's not just Israel, it's his name. Verse 26. And they shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they have perpetrated against me, excuse me, when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them any longer and I will not hide my face from them any longer for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Be encouraged today. God is absolutely faithful. He's faithful to Israel. He will fulfill his promises. In fact, he says, he stakes his reputation on verse 28. He says, when I bring them back into the land, because I do that, then they will know that I am the Lord God. And he's just as faithful to you as he is to Israel. But let me ask you, are you faithful to his calling on your life at this moment? We're living in the last days. This this is not the time to fool around, church. Our king is coming soon. It's a time to be occupied with his business. It's a time to be aggressive about the gospel. Did you know that Jesus Christ said, he said there in Matthew chapter 16 at Caesarea Philippi, where we go when we visit Israel, an incredible site. He said this. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen to me. 
gates are not offensive. Gates are defensive. You know what Jesus said there? He said, when I build my church, it will be an offensive move against the gates of hell. But the gates of hell will not prevail. He said that through the gospel, we snatch people from the domain of darkness and deliver them to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of the beloved son. That terminology that Jesus used is not us being on the defense. It is hell on the defense. It is us on the offense with the gospel. Now is the time to be on the offense. Now is the time to be aggressive in the name of Jesus Christ by his grace and his gentleness with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe God wants to bring in a harvest of these beautiful, beautiful Arab and Persian and other people. God wants to save them. Jesus Christ died upon the cross for these people. He could save the president of Iran. Why don't we intercede for such things? Christian, now is the time to be consumed with kingdom work because the king is coming soon. Last thing I'll say is, is he your king? Is he your king? He's the king. And he's coming. But have you made him your king? Have you bowed a knee to him? Have you said, King Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you're a savior. Forgive me of my sins. As best as I know how, I repent of my sins. And I turn toward you. Save me, King Jesus. Forgive me. Deliver me from the domain of darkness and transfer me to your kingdom. He's a soon and coming king. Is he your king? If he's not your king, I'm telling you the hour is late. Make him your king today. He loves you. He's in control of the nations of the world, but he has given you sovereignty over your own heart. He allows you to choose to receive him or to choose to reject him. And a decision not to receive him is a decision to reject him. And he said, those who deny me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Those who confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Have you chosen in your heart to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and King? Have you repented of your sins and turned toward him and his finished work on the cross and said, save me in faith? If you haven't, I beg you to do it today. He loves you. He died for you. He'll work everything in the Middle East to a glorious end. We'll get to it in a couple weeks. And he's got a glorious plan for your life. Make him your king today. Lord, thank you so much for these beautiful truths. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has not made you their king, that right now you draw them unto yourself. 